Welcome on this special New Year's episode of the Eurasian Climate Brief, a podcast focusing on the region stretching from Eastern Europe and Russia down to the Caucasus and Central Asia. I'm Nathalie Soer, a Paris-based climate journalist. I'm Angelina Davidova, a Berlin-based climate journalist, and um, I also work with a number of NGOs here in Berlin, including NEOST, one of our partners for this podcast. And I'm Boris Schneider, a Berlin-based climate and energy expert, working now with Clean Energy Wire. I hope you're all ready for 2023, because 2022, despite some notable silver linings, hasn't all been smooth sailing. Russia's war in Ukraine has changed everything from our coverage. We've dedicated a good half of our 16 episodes to its climate impacts to our personal lives. Boris, you've been speaking out against the war, and it's shaped a great deal of your current job, hasn't it? Indeed. I took up my current position not long after Russia's horrible February 24th attack on Ukraine. And uh, needless to say, the European energy crisis that has unfolded as a result of this full-scale war has put the work of Clean Energy Wire into the limelight of almost every social and political debate on the continent. And of course, I wish that there were less terrible reasons for why the work that I'm doing matters. And you've relocated to Germany, right, Angelina? Yes, exactly. Well, my personal life has also changed greatly. So in mid-March, I took a decision to leave Russia following the beginning of the full-scale war in Ukraine. And eventually I came to Berlin in late March and I've been based here ever since. So I'm basically trying to um, start a new life in a um, city, which is not very new for me. I've been to Berlin a number of times before, but um, still it's a new new city and it's a new country. I also started working more actively with German media, like print media, and I gave many interviews also to German media and I worked as I said earlier, it was a number of NGOs, so there's a lot of Germany connections in my life now, ever more present than ever before. But at the same time, I also continue tracking what has been happening with the climate policy and climate actions and climate activism in Russia, but also other countries of the region, and we'll speak more specifically about that later in, in this episode. I also became a member of a very special group. It's called Ukraine War Environmental Consequences Work Group. And it's a group which unites environmental and climate experts and journalists from Ukraine, from Belarus, from Russia. The ones from Belarus and Russia are based elsewhere, uh, from the US and uh, from a number of other countries. Yeah, and on a more modest scale, I also took up a new job as English language editor at The Conversation France, uh, where I try to do my bit to shed light on the news of the region and I even collaborated with you, Angelina, for a paper on the effects of the war on Russian climate science and policy, which was a lot of fun and unexpected. Exactly, yes. We co-wrote this paper with um, Katja Dose, who is a senior researcher from the University of Fribourg, and um, Alexander Forbrook from uh, the University of Bern. And we were really trying to take a look at what has been happening uh, with uh, Russian climate science and also international cooperation between Russian climate scientists and uh, climate scientists from elsewhere. But do check out the document in uh, the conversation. It remains uh, very rich to understand what's happening in the climate scene uh, 
as a result of uh, the war. But um, enough about us and uh, our personal lives. Onwards with our 2022 wrap-up for the region. Yeah, exactly. And as I mentioned, I've been following very much in detail what has been happening uh, with uh, regard to Russia's invasion of Ukraine and its environmental and climate consequences. And um, I've been trying to monitor both direct and indirect consequences of the war, including extra emissions from the military actions, including ecosystem destruction in Ukraine, but also more global aspects of the war, including global transformation of the energy market, of food security and food market, and also mining markets. And um, for example, in one of the episodes that we had earlier this year, we had a very interesting talk about the knock-on effects on the minerals necessary for the green transition, because both Russia and Ukraine, uh, they were the countries which used to mine and produce quite a lot of um, basic metals, but also rare metals or rare earth metals. And now the deliveries from Ukraine are obviously hindered because of the war, and um, deliveries of, from Russia are also hindered in many ways because of the sanctions or other trade barriers. Um, then I've also been following, and we've all been following a lot, obviously, the COP27, and I went to COP27 in Egypt in Sharm el-Sheikh, and uh, there the focus was on the way the war is influencing global climate agenda, whether there's still enough attention to climate action, there's still enough climate finance for developing countries, and um, we'll speak more about that a bit later. And I would also like to pay your, I would also like to bring your attention to another episode which we produced. It was produced in summer, following um, uh, the so-called intercessional of the UN climate negotiations, and there we spoke about the way the war in Ukraine influences climate negotiations. And before that, we also had another episode where we spoke to Thane Gustafsson, who is a world-known expert on um, the Russian energy policy. And we were kind of trying to take a look on what's happening with the global energy transition at times when energy security seems to be a priority for many countries. And so our major question was, can energy transition and security um, reinforce each other? And we also had some big science reports this year. So, for instance, the IPCC, which is the United Nations Intergovernmental Body on Climate Change, they released two major reports this year as part of their sixth assessment cycle. And the first of those reports came out in February. It focused on climate change impacts, on adaptation and on vulnerability And quite unsurprisingly, the report found that the world is not on track to achieve a climate-safe future. And basically, in short, while billions of people are already experiencing the effects of climate change, action to adapt to the climate crisis is lagging behind what is needed to stave off the worst impacts of it. And then there was another report that came out in April And that one dealt with climate change mitigation. This report found that in the last decade, so in the decade between 2010 and 2019, we saw the highest increase in greenhouse gas emissions in human history. And while the window to limit global warming to the famous 1.5 degrees Celsius is closing quite rapidly, there are still viable strategies 
in every sector to limit emissions. Also on the UN front, there was another breakthrough, and that one took place at this year's United Nations Climate Conference, the COP27 in Egypt that Angelina mentioned before. And this breakthrough was the deal on the so-called loss and damage fund. This was certainly the highlight of this year's COP, and it was the result of many years of decades of pressure that had come from climate-vulnerable developing countries. And the goal of this loss and damage fund is to provide financial assistance to the most vulnerable nations impacted by the effects of climate change. And representatives from 24 countries will be working together over the next year to decide together what form the fund should take, to which countries it should contribute and where exactly the money and how much money should be distributed. And talking about the IPCC, we saw more extreme weather events around the region, of course. So according to the scientific body, temperatures in Central Asia are rising faster than the global average. Over the past five years, Central Asian countries have already experienced some of the worst droughts, which has led to shortages of water for irrigation and hydropower. This in turn has pushed up food prices and caused electricity shortages. But let's move on to the uh, mainstay of this episode, which is the impacts of the war on global climate action. Angelina, as, as Rana Vrush's uh, top environmental journalist, I'll leave you uh, to describe just what an earthquake Russia's invasion into Ukraine has been for the climate movement. Yes, exactly, Natalie. And um, if we take a look more specifically about the uh, impacts of the war in Ukraine on environmental and climate agenda globally and locally, well, first of all, we can speak about immediate chemical pollution and um, destruction of energy infrastructure in Ukraine and civil infrastructure in Ukraine, and also nuclear threats, which we experienced in case of uh, Chernobyl nuclear power plant and also later in the year as a Parogia power plant. But then we can also speak about more indirect consequences of the war in Ukraine. For example, what has been happening with uh, Russia's climate legislation, Russia's climate science. And uh, in one episode where we spoke to Maria Pastuhova, who is a researcher with the think tank E3G, and Anna Korpo from the Fritjof Nansen Institute, we did reflect on what has been happening with Russia's climate policy. I mean, on one hand, on paper, it remains the way it used to be before the war. But then we will also to look beyond the official words and um, see what has been happening in the energy sector, in the emissions sector, in the uh, environmental legislation sector, for example, standards for vehicles or standards for flaring gas burning for oil companies. So in that episode, we were really trying to look into the reality of what has been happening uh, with Russia's climate action. And then obviously the war had an impact on climate diplomacy at large. I already mentioned how Especially in the early months of the war, there was a lot of concern whether um, climate agenda will remain as important the way it used to be before, and also whether the extra spending on weapons by many countries of the global north will actually impact climate finance, which is going towards the countries of the global south. 
Now towards the end of the year, it doesn't look like we've seen a very big negative impact and very big negative influence on the climate agenda per se. However, obviously the short-term energy decisions, um, and I think Boris spoke about some of them, um, they influence the global energy market. Um, for example, some countries building up new LNG infrastructure or some other companies, uh, some other countries launching coal plants again. This all obviously changes the global energy market. And then back, uh, back to Russia, uh, we, as I mentioned already at COP27 and also at previous uh, climate negotiations, there were quite a few uh, protest actions by Ukrainian climate activists and also international climate activists when negotiators were leaving the room, when Russia's representatives were talking, or, for example, more specifically in um, COP27, Ukrainian activists made a protest action during Russia's official side event. And then another story was obviously that um, um, the many international organizations story that uh, Russia's place was either suspended or put on pause. For example, the, the case in point here is in Arctic Council. And uh, while Russia still remains chair of the Arctic Council until May 2023, the other seven member states have suspended their participation in response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. So that was quite a big story. But um, of course, the war has also had a huge impact on Europe's energy makeup. Um, I've mentioned it briefly, but um, Natalie, um, if you could elaborate on that a bit more. Uh, so this has to be one of your top three stories for Eastern Europe, right? Yes, definitely. So Europe's increasing energy independence from Russia has to be one of my big uh, stories from my top three for Eastern Europe. So in October, the European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen declared the EU had replaced two thirds of its Russian gas imports since February by switching to other suppliers. And the Baltics have been heading in that direction for decades, really. In April, Lithuania became the first country to wean itself completely off Russian gas imports. The state had understood the urgency of severing energy ties with Moscow back in 1993, when Russian oil supplies were cut off for non-payment, or so Moscow would allege. And in 2016, Russia deactivated the Druzhba oil pipeline branch through Lithuania. Both events have naturally pushed the country to diversify its oil supplies. What can we say are the country's secrets for energy independence? In an article for The Conversation Europe, Anastasia Shapushkina identifies its reliance on nuclear power, a clear energy strategy, as well as a good energy diversification. So on top of diversified oil supplies, Lithuania has been able to steadily decrease its dependency on natural gas by investing in renewable energy and boosting the share of biomass in district heating. And it looks like it has inspired some to follow suit. As a result of the invasion, Poland announced its plans to build three nuclear power plants with a total capacity of nine gigawatts by 2040. And all of this gives heart to climate activists, including those based in Ukraine, campaigning hard for Europe to free itself from Russian fossil fuel energy. 
And this is probably, for me, the second biggest story in Eastern Europe for the year, Ukraine's flourishing climate activists amid the war. We interviewed Svitlana Romanko in our last episode, who detailed how her organization, Razum We Stand, went about fighting for European energy independence from Russia. Over the past months, it has demanded a full ban on the import of any fossil fuels from Russia, to stop financial organizations funding or servicing the Russian fossil fuel industry, or trading with companies that fund Russia's war. And we also saw two big conflicts in the region which we covered resolve. Warsaw and Prague indeed spent 2021 sparring over the future of a lignite coal mine located in Turov, southwest Poland, at the frontier with the Czech Republic and Germany. The Czech government at the time argued that the recently expanded mine was affected local groundwater levels and polluting its environment, while Poland's government claimed the coal mine was essential to its energy security. But in February 2022, they reached a deal under which Warsaw and PGE, the owner of the mine, would shell out 45 million euros to finance measures aimed at preventing the mine from negatively impacting the lives of locals living on the Czech side of the border. And in January, Serbia withdrew the exploration licenses of the Anglo-Australian mining company Rio Tinto following weeks of protests over plans for a lithium mine there. And we covered that extensively, including with local correspondents, in an episode in late 2021. But according to reports this month, in the Australian press, almost a year on after the Serbian government's U-turn, the company still hasn't given up hope on its development plans. In December, Rio Tinto's CEO, Jakob Stalsholm, argued that Europe needs it and Serbia needs it for its development. So that's one to watch over the next months or years. And what about Central Asia, Boris? Do you have anything in store for us? So in the beginning of the year and a few weeks after the beginning of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, uh, Olha Boyko from the Climate Action Network in Eastern Europe, the Caucasus and Central Asia, an organization that we are very close with and collaborate from time to time with, stressed how due to the invasion, the countries of the Caucasus and of Central Asia are becoming even more vulnerable than before. They were already experiencing melting glaciers and water shortages and droughts. And this means that those countries will lose some of their ability to adapt and will need even additional support to fight the effects of climate change. So we see very clearly that besides being an unbelievable tragedy for the Ukrainians themselves, this war has also triggered numerous negative effects in already vulnerable countries. And as Natalie mentioned before, the Central Asian ones are certainly amongst the ones that are affected the most. The next story I would like to mention is dealing with heat waves. So in early April, 2022, when it was supposed to be spring in Central Asia in normal times, temperatures reached midsummer levels of 
30 to 33 degrees Celsius in Uzbekistan, which was about 8 to 10 degrees Celsius above the average for early April. And a similar trend was noticeable in northern Kyrgyzstan, including in its capital Bishkek. And their temperatures hit 26 to 28 degrees Celsius in the first week of April, which was again well above average. And all records were broken in Ashgabat, the capital of Turkmenistan, where the thermometer reached unbelievable 36.6 degrees Celsius, which is at least six degrees warmer than the previous record for this date in 1991. So we see that this is really one of the major problems in many of the Central Asian countries, and we can expect that this will only increase this kind of problem will become bigger in the next years. Then in December this year, so uh, just a few weeks before we recorded this episode, part of Kazakhstan's energy system had to be put into emergency operation because of a record high electricity consumption in the country. And you have to know that Kyrgyz authorities often import electricity from Kazakhstan during the heating season and this kind of complicates the matter even more so once again we see that the effects of climate change and the energy issues that arise from climate change are something that is very difficult to tackle on a national level because for example in this case the energy systems and the energy trading in between the central asian countries is very much interlinked and interconnected and this story reminds me of one of our first episodes that we did with the Eurasian Climate Brief. So on February the 9th, uh, when we did our fourth episode, we covered the energy shortages in Kazakhstan, for which one of the reasons was certainly the increased activities in cryptocurrency mining in the country. It's quite a complex and technical topic, but we went to explain it in detail in the episode. And to cut a long story short, because neighboring countries, above all China, outlawed the mining of crypto in the country, many of the so-called crypto mining farms moved to Kazakhstan, where energy is still quite cheap and at that time easily available. But of course, we then during the episode explained how the sudden increase in the demand for electricity uh, led to those shortages and also increased emissions because a large percentage of um, Kazakhstan's energy or electricity is produced uh, with coal. And um, we were in a way very lucky with that episode in the sense that we, um, when we kind of planned it and we wrote it, we, would, we were of course uh, not aware of the coming energy shortages, but uh, we managed kind of to to hit the right story at the right time and this is certainly something that we will aim for also in the new year. So Natalie, could you tell us a little bit about what's next and what we are planning for 2023? Thanks, Boris. There are indeed some trends for 2023, which we can already identify, all of which we might produce episodes on. So we don't know when the war will end, but we do know Europe will continue to cut as many energy ties with Moscow as possible. 
at the EU's Energy Council on Monday, the 19th of December, the EU's Energy Commissioner, Kadri Simpson, said that speeding up the deployment of renewables was from now on a key component of the European agenda to phase out Russian fossil fuels and isolate Moscow. And in September, MEPs voted overwhelmingly in favour of the 45% target of renewable energy for 2030. Right. And if we look beyond Europe at the global trend, there was an important report by the NGO International Rescue Committee that came out recently. And that report predicted that global heating will continue to worsen humanitarian crises around the world in 2023. And one of the reminders in the report was that the number of people that are requiring humanitarian aid has risen sharply over the last few years. So, for example, versus 81 million such people in 2014, this number is now approaching 339.2 million, a really staggering amount. And something else that we will, of course, keep on our radar for the coming year are the implications of the United Nations climate stories for our region. Probably the most important event again will be the COP that this year will be taking place in Dubai in November. And the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, will release another report, its so-called synthesis report, which is a policy document that will integrate all the findings of its major reports in the last five years since 2018, which is set to be released just ahead of the global stock take. So Angelina, could you tell us one or two words about it? What exactly is the global stock take that I guess most of the white public will not have heard about before? Right. So the global stock take is basically is a process for tracking progress with the implementation of the Paris Agreement. So it's seeing which countries have which climate targets, what have we achieved so far globally and collectively, uh, what are still emission gaps, what still needs to be done. So in a way, it's tracking progress, uh, what has already been achieved, what has been promised, where we are now, and also a kind of an overview for future, what needs to be done and in which particular sectors. On my side, and also picking up on this, um, I would also like to uh, bring our attention to another topic, uh, which is related to another UN climate conference, which actually took place just a couple of weeks ago, and it's the UN Biodiversity Conference, which was co-organized by Canada and China, and uh, which came up with a biodiversity agreement, which says protecting 30% of land and sea by 2030. Uh, now, we have not spoken so much about biodiversity this year, but from what we see within the global climate agenda and I think also within the regional climate actions and uh, uh, policies of the countries in our region, well, biodiversity plays a very big role. And um, globally, we see how biodiversity agenda and climate agenda are kind of going together. And there's more talk about uh, ideas like economy being nature positive or natural-based solutions. 
And um, those are the topics which are very relevant and very important for the countries of our region. So I believe this is also one of the areas that we'll research more deeply and we'll find people to talk to. I like that positive tone, Angelina. Could you lift our listeners' spirits with uh, some other good forecasts for 2023? Right. Well, we do hope that we'll actually have some good stories to talk about. As I mentioned, this year I also went to Kazakhstan and uh, I did a number of lectures there and also did a training for journalists from the Central Asian countries on climate reporting. And I was also trying to see and to track what is happening in Kazakhstan with regard to climate policy. And um, Kazakhstan is one of the countries of the region which is currently drafting its long-term low-carbon development strategy until 2050 with an aim also to go net zero between before 2050 or 2060. And I think it's a very interesting process. And I also met a number of people, climate experts, environmental experts, who are participating in it. So um, I feel like the whole topic of public participation in the countries like Kazakhstan or Kyrgyzstan is, uh, is very important. There's also some good stories about uh, renewable energy development, one of the episodes we had, we spoke to the executive director of Brand21 about uh, renewable energy development in the countries of our region. And um, she told us about how she thought before the war, uh, it was mainly Ukraine, Russia, and Kazakhstan who showed uh, most of the progress in the area. So we'll certainly follow on that. And so far, the latest news before the end of the year was that um, Uzbekistan, another Central Asian country, uh, is also planning to increase renewable energy generation by 2026. So we'll certainly follow on this. That is a great and very hopeful outlook for the next years. And while covering those stories and dedicating episodes to them, we plan to, as much as possible, speak to grassroots and to local activists in the regions and to get their voices heard. And on that note, we wish you all a very happy new year, full of victories for the environment and count on us to be back soon with more exciting stories and hopefully investigations. Happy new year. Happy new year. So that's it for today. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please do leave us a review and share the episode on social media. Our podcast is supported by NOST, a Berlin-based NGO backing cross-border journalism by the Moscow Times and by the European Climate Foundation. A big thank you to our three partners for making our work possible. We'd love to know your thoughts on the topics we discuss in each episode. Get in touch on Twitter, where you'll find us at Eurasian Climate. And if you can, please support our show on Patreon at patreon.com slash Eurasian Climate. We'll be back soon with a new episode, so see you then. See you then.